Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. On the Report Card, we tackle a variety of education research, practice, and policy issues that impact families, schools, and students. Now, usually we have guests on to discuss a topic, but longtime listeners might remember that back in March, we brought you a debate that was held here at AEI live on stage on whether there should be a federal right to education. This week, we bring you our latest installment in our education policy debate series on the report card. The motion of this debate, Betsy DeVos's proposed Title IX regulations on sexual harassment are a step in the right direction. The debate you're about to listen to took place live here at the American Enterprise Institute on Thursday, June 27th. Since I introduced the topic at the live debate, we can jump right in. Welcome to the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Nat Malkus. Uh, I'm a resident scholar here in Education Policy Studies, and I have the privilege of moderating tonight's installment of our Education Policy Debate series. Uh, this debate may not be the most viewed tonight in the country, but it's likely going to be the most substantive. Uh, this series aims to bring together uh, preeminent experts that are willing to debate consequential and controversial education policy issues in a civil and productive display of what we here at AEI like to call the competition of ideas. AEI has lots of events, and they almost all involve uh, experts and consequential issues and controversy. But the debate series brings in one extra issue, and it hinges on it, and that's you, the audience. After this introduction, I'm going to ask all of you to weigh in on our motion and give your opinion, agree, disagree, or undecided, uh, using your cell phones. And then we're going to have the debate, and then I'm going to ask you to vote again. And whichever one of these two teams sways your vote further will be the winner of tonight's debate. So you're an integral part of our event. Now, I mentioned earlier that our debates often deal with controversial topics and uh, consequential ones, and tonight is certainly not an exception. Tonight, we'll be discussing proposed changes to Title IX regulations that govern how colleges and universities appropriately respond to issues of sexual harassment and assault. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge right up front that tonight's topic is very personal and can be very traumatic for many people. It's also a topic that uh, can be cast in some of the starkest terms on op-ed pages and on Twitter. Uh, go figure. And uh, these can include ad hominem attacks, uh, suspicion of motives, and other arguments that interfere with rather than encourage an honest and productive competition of ideas. So acknowledging that and the passions that uh, this issue can raise, I think it's important to establish that all of us on this stage believe that sexual harassment and assault are horrific realities that deserve and demand justice. And this debate is focused on the appropriateness of Title IX policies that have been proposed and whether they're going to move towards or away from justice on these issues. So I ask all of, all of you to respectfully listen to the arguments that have been made precisely because this topic is so important to evaluate in an open and clear-eyed manner. Sexual assault and harassment are problems that educational institutions have to deal with under any reading of Title IX. There's good reason to believe that too often 
sexual assault and harassment goes unreported to educational institutions and uh, when it rises to the level, to, uh, to that level, to law enforcement. And these issues can occur in all kinds of colleges and universities, and the rates vary considerably across colleges and universities. And while the frequency of sexual assault can be difficult to measure, many of the estimates that have been measured are alarmingly high. Now, these are all ample reasons for us to set good Title IX policy, but that may not be as straightforward as we think. Post-secondary institutions are not necessarily designed to adjudicate these issues well, and they have struggled to do so. And both the Obama and Trump administrations have taken significant steps, not necessarily in the same direction, to shape how institutions approach these issues in order to protect students and ensure gender equity. So on to tonight's topic. After rescinding Obama-era Title IX guidance in 2017, last November, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos proposed new guidelines which would go through a formal notice and comment process for regulatory changes, which, if instituted as drafted, would constitute a durable sea change from Title IX policies under the Obama administration, which she and others criticized as overreach. Uh, the proposal is roughly 150 pages long, so I'm not going to cover it all in this introduction. But it does include narrowing the definition of sexual uh, harassment, requiring schools to apply additional due process protections, requiring live hearings. It narrows the scope of schools' responsibilities in terms of reporting, locations, and their response, and it allows schools to choose a different standard of proof than had previously been required. The proposed regulations aren't yet final. They're still pending review, but they've generated quite a bit of interest. Uh, that might be reflected in the 124,000 comments that the Department of Education received during the comment process and has to respond to every single one. Tonight, we aren't debating the, the uh, eventual regulations. We're debating the proposed regulations as drafted. So Betsy DeVos has said about these regulations and Title IX enforcement in general, here's what I have learned. The truth is that the system established by the prior administration has failed too many students, survivors, victims of a lack of due process, and campus administrators have all told me that the current approach does a disservice to everyone involved. That's why we must do better, because the current approach isn't working. Well, that's tonight's question. Are the proposed regulations better? Now, there are too many individual parts of these regulations to debate each one individually. So tonight, I brought together these four first-rate debaters to get into the specifics, but to argue a holistic question. And that motion, tonight's motion, is Betsy DeVos's proposed Title IX regulations on sexual assault are a step in the right direction. So our debate tonight quickly will follow a simple pattern. I'm going to give our debaters, uh, in turn, three minutes for opening statements from each debater. Then I'm going to ask them some questions, and we're going to have a conversation for about 20 minutes uh, where we talk amongst ourselves. It's not me and them. It's all of us together. And then we will turn it over to the audience for uh, some question and answer time, um, and also take uh, questions from Twitter using the debate hashtag. That's hashtag AEI debate. Uh, following the Q&A, we'll take two-minute closing statements from each debater in the same order, and then I'll ask you to vote again on the motion 
uh, and we'll declare a winner. So right now I want you to vote on the motion. Again, the motion is, and I'm going to read it to make sure that I state it correctly, Betsy DeVos's proposed Title IX regulations on sexual harassment are a step in the right direction. At the end of the debate, we'll compare the pre and post uh, counts to determine who the winner is. Um, so now I'm going to close the voting in about 10 seconds. So please finish your texting now. And then I'm going to uh, support, uh, introduce our debaters. Tamara Rice Lave is the professor of the, uh, is a professor at the University of Miami School of Law. Before joining Miami Law, she served for ten years as a public defender in San Diego, where she handled a wide variety of cases, including rape and sexual assault. She's published more than 20 articles and book chapters, as well as opinion pieces for the Huffington Post, and she holds a PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, and is a graduate of Stanford Law School. Tamara, thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you. Shep Melnick is the Thomas O'Neill Jr. Professor of American Politics at Boston College. He's the author of The Transformation of Title IX, Regulating Gender Equality in Education, from my friends just down the road here at Brookings, and is a contributor to National Affairs, where he's written about Title IX. He previously taught at Brandeis University as the chair of the politics department, and at Harvard, where he earned his PhD. Shep, thanks for being here. And on the opposing side, Nancy Chi Cantalupo, Cantalupo rather, is a professor of Bar at Barry University School of Law. At Barry, she focuses her research on gender-based discrimination and sexual violence. She's consulted on uh, cases at the U.S. Department of Education and for a White House task force, and has been written, uh, has written for or been interviewed by the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Time Magazine. She graduated from Georgetown Law. Nancy, thanks for being here as well. And last but certainly not least, Seth Gallanter is an attorney and senior director at the National Center for Youth Law. Previously, he worked in the Obama administration's Department of Education in the Office for Civil Rights, and before that, at the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division. He was also a Bristow Fellow in the Office of the U.S. Solicitor General and is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Seth, glad to have you here. Thanks to our debaters and to the audience. It looks like we have a debate, and we are going to kick it off, starting with the supporters of the motion. And, Shep, I think you're going to take first crack. Thanks. I hate to admit it, but the Trump administration finally got something right. I have four reasons for believing the Department of Education's 2018 proposal is a step in the right direction. First, process. The Obama administration made policy through unilateral decrees with little opportunity for public participation. The current Department of Education, in contrast, has shown the respect for the role of law by using the notice and comment rulemaking process required by the Administrative Procedure Act. Uh, this is the most thorough, the most open, and participatory rulemaking ever conducted under Title IX. The department received and will respond to over 100,000 comments. The 2011 Dear Colleague letter, uh, in contrast, asked for comments only after it had announced its edicts. That letter was based on the transparent fiction there was nothing new in it, despite the fact that the White House called it pathbreaking. Bad process produces bad policy. Second, in marked contrast to the Obama policy, the 2018 proposal stays close to the Supreme Court's interpretation of Title IX. 
The previous administration basically announced, we don't like the Supreme Court's interpretation, so we'll simply ignore it. The Supreme Court has said that to violate Title IX, conduct must be serious enough to deprive a student of the opportunity to receive an education. The 2011 Dear Colleague letter, in contrast, extended the definition of sexual harassment to include verbal conduct, such as making sexual comments, jokes, or gestures. Verbal conduct, that is bureaucraties for speech. Enormous regulatory overreach is what you get when administrative commands become completely unmoored from what the statute says and what the Supreme Court has said. That brings me to my third reason. By staying close to the Supreme Court's interpretation of Title IX, the proposal protects free speech on campus. The previous administration's unilateral decrees empowered the speech police who inhabit many Title IX offices on campus. This has had a chilling effect on free speech on campus, which is why many comedians won't go to campus anymore. Finally, there's the elephant in the room, due process. My partner will say much more about this. For now, I'll just note that the Obama OCR encouraged schools to adopt a single investigator model that would make one person appointed uh, by the Title IX coordinator the police, the judge, and the jury in sexual harassment cases. Under the 2018 proposal, these kangaroo courts must be replaced by live hearings and some form of cross-examination. Now, our opponents uh, will argue that the problem of sexual harassment is so serious, we should abandon our usual understandings of due process. Does that sound familiar? Uh, Senator McCarthy claims that the danger of communist infiltration was so great that a mere accusation should be enough to ruin someone's reputation. For generations, we were told that the threat to the purity and virtue of white women was so great that we need not provide trials to black men accused of sexual misconduct. Those were dangerous arguments then, and they remain dangerous arguments now. Thank you. Shep Melnick. And uh, from the opponent's side, Seth Gallanter, open up for us. Imagine with me that the Trump-DeVos regulations actually get enacted. And imagine with me that you go to a college, and it doesn't matter what college, because 7,000 colleges across the country, from higher ed to community college to barber college, are going to be subjected to this rule. And then imagine that you've been subjected to sexual harassment. Now, maybe it is you're in your chem lab and you're constantly being taunted by your classmates so you can't get your labs done. Maybe a professor offers to improve your grades in exchange for sex. Maybe you've been raped in your dorm or at a frat party. You decide you want to report it. You go to your professor, someone you know and trust, and, and tell her or him, and they say, sorry, you can't talk to me. I mean, you can talk to me, but it doesn't count. You have to go talk to the Title IX coordinator. They're the only ones you can report this to. And so then you arrange to meet with the Title IX coordinator. You call him up on the phone, and she says, oh, if you want to file a complaint, it has to be in writing, and you have to sign it. So come on it. Uh, so you do that, and then the you say to the coordinator, when will I get, when will you interview the accused person? Because I see them on campus all the time. And the coordinator says, they can't be interviewed until they receive a written notice of the date, time, location, participants, and purpose of the interview, and they have to have sufficient time to prepare for that interview and to get an advisor who can attend. So after a few weeks, after all, it's hard to schedule those interviews around classes and advisor schedules. 
The investigator lets you know the investigation's done. They send you and your accused counterpart a link to a file sharing platform that contains all the evidence they collected, even evidence they're not planning to rely on in uh, making their recommendation. You both have 10 days, at least, to dig through those files. And you see, you know, when the investigator was talking to one of your friends that, and asked about your mental health, your friend mentioned, oh, yeah, she's been in therapy because of some family violence issues. Now, the accused gets to see that same file, and the regulations prohibit the school from stopping the accused from sharing that private information with anyone they want. The investigator then issues the report, then another 10-day waiting period, and finally you can get to the hearing where you can tell your story. Both of you have a right to bring an advisor. The accused that uh, happens to have a parent who's a lawyer, so they'll be representing the accused, you accept a university advisor, a very nice person, who's not a lawyer and doesn't really have a lot of experience in legal issues. At the hearing, you will be subject to cross-examination by the advisor, who can be, as I said, a parent or a friend of the accused. There's no one to object to the questions that, other than you that is, are asked. And the decision maker tells you he can't restrict questioning like a court can based on unfair prejudice, wasting time, cumulative evidence. The only limit in questioning is you can't ask about sexual history, and except with some exceptions, and relevancy, which for those of you who are lawyers know is an incredibly broad term. And the decision maker, every time he refuses to let a question be asked, must explain his decision. It's not enough for him to just decide, say it's irrelevant. Later, and again, there's no real time limit on this, you get a written decision. If the decision maker finds the accused was not responsible, but the written findings that he makes shows that he made errors of fact or made wrong uh, and had wrong reasoning, you're out of luck. You can't appeal. And if the decision maker finds the accused responsible but decides no sanctions required because, you know, it's only the first time he did it, then the accused can appeal the finding of responsibility, but you can't appeal the lack of sanction. And as you look back and you ask yourself, was it worth filing this complaint in the first place, or should I have just been silent? The Trump-DeVos regulations encourage silence. Seth Galanter, thank you very much. And uh, again, opening statements from uh, the second opening statement from Tamara Rice Lave. Imagine being accused of violating your university's conduct code, but not being told what exactly you were supposed to have done. You have no right to see the evidence and you can't have the help of a lawyer. You have no opportunity to question your accuser or indeed any of the witnesses against you. In fact, there is no hearing at all. The person who investigates your case is the same person who decides whether you are guilty. Once you are found responsible, the decision can't be overturned even if it was incorrect, unfair, arbitrary, or unsupported by the evidence. This is exactly what happened to a Brandeis University student, and in 2016, a federal judge found that Brandeis had violated his right to a fair and impartial process. But what about those students who cannot afford to sue in federal court? It is this injustice that the new DeVos guidelines seek to remedy. In addition to guaranteeing meaningful notice, the right to counsel, and requiring schools to provide both parties with a written investigation report summarizing the relevant evidence pointing to both guilt and innocence, DeVos made some more controversial reforms. I will focus on two of them now. The 2011 Dear Colleague Letter, although no doubt well-intentioned, 
encourage schools to use the single investigator model. That means one person investigates and then decides whether or not the accused committed the offense. Such a system ignores the reality of confirmation bias or the tendency for people to seek or interpret evidence in a manner that is partial to existing beliefs, expectations, or an existing hypothesis. A 2007 study by Askin Granhag found that experienced investigators judged, judged witness statements differently depending on whether the statement was consistent or inconsistent with their initial theory. And this bias doesn't just impact the accused. A Title IX investigator may believe that a victim is lying, and once they come to that belief, they simply cannot see the evidence that shows she is telling the truth. Thus, DeVos was right to do away with the single investigator model and require live hearings in post-secondary schools. Another key DeVos reform is giving students in post-secondary institutions the right to question the other party as well as the witnesses against them. The Supreme Court has called cross-examination the greatest legal invention ever invented for the discovery of truth. And written questions simply aren't as effective. A 2004 study by Chantrico found that it is demonstrably more difficult for a witness to consistently answer spontaneous questions under live cross-examination if he is being insincere. But cross-examination doesn't mean harassment and intimidation. The new DeVos guidelines require that questioning be done through a party advisor and the parties have the right to be in separate rooms. Like rape shield laws, schools must exclude questioning about the complainant's sexual behavior except in a few limited circumstances. Being found responsible for sexual misconduct is devastating <clears throat> and students must have the right to adequately defend themselves. The new DeVos guidelines are not perfect, but they are a major step in the right direction. Thank you, Tamara Bryce-Lave. And finally, rounding out our opening statements, Nancy Chi Canalupo. Um, so decades of research and evidence like the flood of Me Too disclosures has confirmed again and again the deeply harmful and widespread nature of sexual harassment. Yet DeVos's, DeVos's proposed rules would exacerbate, not alleviate this problem. Worse, DeVos's proposals discriminate on the basis of both gender and race because the harm they would do to victims would be particularly acute for women victims of color. This intersectional race and gender discrimination will be caused by three facts that we know from research in the criminal justice system, workplaces, and education. First, we know that women of color are sexually harassed more and more severely than white women. Second, we know that women of color are less likely to be believed when they complain because they face stereotypes that are both racist and sexist. Racialized stereotypes dating back to slavery and colonialism treat women of color as prostitutes or as promiscuous. Then, sex stereotypes about supposedly unchaste women being essentially unrapeable cause many to assume that women of color are lying when we say that we did not consent to sexual activity. The proposed rules will push schools to use standards that will make it harder for all victims to be believed, but this disbelief will be particularly damaging for survivors of color. Third, studies from both the criminal justice system and education show that men and boys of color are not discriminatorily 
uh, disciplined in sexual harassment and violence cases, even though they are subject to discriminatory discipline for other misconduct, especially when that misconduct primarily harms whites. DeVos's proposals ignore this data and pretend that they are going to advance racial justice by decreasing discriminatory discipline of men of color. But in actuality, they do nothing to address the real discriminatory discipline problems facing men of color, even as the proposals enable the intersectional race and gender discrimination that I've already discussed. On this last point, note that in cases where there is an extensively documented discriminatory discipline problem, again, in cases not involving sexual harassment, DeVos has quietly dismantled protections against discriminatory discipline for students of color by rescinding guidance that protected them from ending up in the school-to-prison pipeline. As this evidence shows, DeVos's proposals have nothing to do with advancing racial justice. They are not only discriminatory in terms of gender, but also in terms of race. Therefore, anyone who cares about either or both racial and gender justice should oppose this resolution. Thank you, Nancy Canalupo, and thank you for the opening statements. So I want to start off with a, a, a broad definitional question. It seems sort of like a foundational start. Uh, we can argue forever about the best way to define sexual harassment, but tonight we're trying to argue over the definition that the new DeVos regulations uh, Use and they borrow from Justice O'Connor's uh, 1998 majority opinion in uh, in Davis that misconduct must be so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that it effectively bars the victim's access to an educational opportunity or benefit. My question for either side, whoever wants to take it first, is this definition adequate, and how should we expect it to affect how colleges deal with sexual harassment and assault? So I just want to jump in and say, it's really important to remember that what's happening here is that Secretary DeVos is saying what conduct is covered by Title VII, excuse me, Title IX. Schools are allowed to decide conduct violates their conduct code, their school of conduct. The issue is whether or not the conduct actually implicates the federal, the federal government and Title IX. And so whether or not that falls on, whether or not that, that, that is something that you may find to be too restrictive, just remember, schools can go beyond it under their conduct code. It's just not Title IX behavior. So let me push the, the question back to you, though. Given that, uh, that sort of minimum threshold, does the sort of O'Connor-based definition suit you as that fundamental low bar? So if I can, if I can just jump in on this, um, the, the issue with O'Connor's definition, and this was litigated um, during the, both the Jebser and the Davis cases, is that it does not comport with sexual harassment as it was originally defined in the Meritor case and in the cases where sexual harassment was introduced um, under Title VII, which is you know, the workplace discrimination um, statute. And so what we have is essentially that children are less protected from harassing conduct, sexually harassing conduct, 
than employees are, adult employees are, in, um, in their workplaces. And that's a real problem. So, you know, there has been lots of, of criticism of the Jebser and Davis standard from the very beginning. Um, and basically what the DeVos proposals do is codify, attempt to codify into OCR regulations the, a standard that has been shown over and over again to be a, an incorrect standard. Could, oh. I, could I respond to that? Sure. Um, the standard has not been shown to be incorrect. Um, it has, the, the Supreme Court has endorsed it. It has never changed it. What Nancy basically is saying and what many people are saying is to interpret what a statute says, what Congress intended, what does Title IX mean? Well, we've got to look to Title VII, which is completely different. In, 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 it's a statute that imposes restrictions on employers rather than schools. It deals with people at different ages. Um, so you're saying we should throw away one Supreme Court decision that is directly on Title IX and rely on another decision on another statute that we happen to like better. I think we should show more respect for the Supreme Court by not playing games with what the statute says. And if, if I could add, I mean, I you need not ask for permission anymore. <laughs> All right, fine. Uh, if I could just say, look, for the lawyers here, yes, there's a debate about the word severe, pervasive, serious, and whether the standard that the court articulated was for damages or was an interpretation of Title IX. Title IX says you may not be subject to discrimination, you can't be denied a benefit, and you can't be excluded from participation because of your sex. And when you can't learn because you're being harassed, you are being denied a benefit. Now, how do we know that you can't learn? And part of that is going to be an objective question. Like, should a reasonable person in your position be able to lump it? Or is it something that we as a society are willing to say, you know, you've crossed a line here. Not that we're trying to shut you down. We're not trying to shut down your political views. But we're saying, don't. Don't harass them in the classroom. Don't rape them. Don't offer them grades for sex. These are not hard questions, no matter how you interpret the statute. And by going to this particular language of severe, pervasive, whatever, is rape a single rape pervasive? That's really hard to kind of wrap your brain around. The question is, is it bad enough? And these adjectives we use, severe, pervasive, uh, offensive, those are just guidelines to help us figure out what we're trying to address here as a society. And just one more point is that, yes, schools could go beyond this, although, and I'm happy to hear you say that, given Shep's notion that anytime you use speech, that's protected by the First Amendment, but schools haven't. And what triggered this in 2011 and before is widespread recognition that Schools were not responding to complaints. They were covering them up. And what happened was people stopped reporting them altogether, and sexual harassment just festered on college campuses and in high schools and middle schools and elementary schools where these regulations were also applied. So let me, let me uh, move on. OK, quickly. OK, I just want to remind you that what Title IX governs is not Joe Blow fraternity member. It's the institution that's getting federal funding. And so is one rape criminal? Yes. So did one rape get someone expelled? Yes. But does one rape that the school knows nothing about or has no reason to think is going to happen with that particular individual, does that implicate Title IX? No. 
Let me ask about uh, the Office of Civil Rights. Nancy, you mentioned that the regulation is codifying for the Office of Civil Rights how it should act. And so given some of the backstory, and I'll let the debaters fill in on this, but my question is whether these regulations are actually aimed at colleges and universities, or actually in spirit, they're actually aimed at the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights. What do you, I don't what do you understand? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm wondering if the regulations are actually aimed at constraining the uh. Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights and their future actions as they uh, investigate and work uh, with colleges in investigations, or whether, it's or whether they're actually designated to constrain uh, colleges and universities primarily. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'll take a shot at that. I think they're, they're designed to do both. Uh, and what I mean by that is that the, the net that OCR spread that was so broad uh, under the Obama administration meant that the rules were extremely elaborate. Um, they covered almost everything, um, jokes, innuendos, whatever. Um, and I think that the Obama administration also had to rely on these very extensive investigations that lasted sometimes for years and basically gave no relief to the people who made the complaint. So what I'd say is by constraining what OCR does and getting it to focus on the most important problems and responding to individual complaints, it is actually will be end up doing a better job at dealing with the very serious problems that Seth mentioned. If I can just, uh, you know, the, the issue for for constraining OCR, I think that that's a very distinct possibility, that that's what these regulations are designed to do um, for, you know, future administrations, right, that might have a different approach. Um, the problem is that, you know, it, there's this... There's this myth that the Obama administration, you know, that the Dear Colleague letter, the 2011 Dear Colleague letter, was written out of whole cloth, um, came from nowhere, um, and that, you know, the Obama administration created this whole situation. That's not true. Um, the things that were talked about in the Dear Colleague letter were had shown up, had already been in what OCR was doing for 20 years, um, either through their investigations or through their proactive guidance. And, um, and you know, they had actually addressed the uh, Jebser and Davis standards, right? They had they had already said that the Jebser and Davis standards, that they were not going to follow the Jebser Davis standards because um, those standards were about monetary damages against the schools, not about what OCR does, which is injunctive relief. You can get OCR to come in and tell your school and help your school to figure out how to do these cases better not to pay a bunch of monetary damages. So by injunctive relief, just to translate for the non-legals, that means immediate changes to the way things are executed. Exactly. As opposed to monetary damages. As, as opposed to having requiring the school to pay, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, right. which, you know, many of these of the Title IX cases that have gone, you know, 
gotten to the point of being settled have resulted in hundreds of thousands of dollars, even millions of dollars, right. so because the supporters have done such a bad job. I want to invite you to... Yeah. So, I, Nancy, with respectfully, I disagree with you. I do think that, in fact, the Dear Colleague letter was a major change from the prior guidance documents, but to explain why requires a very nit, a very nitpicky, I don't mean that disrespectfully, I just mean it requires a very nuanced, detailed analysis that I don't want to get into. But the point I do want to make in response to your question is, yes, it, it did constrain universities. It constrained OCR in the sense that there was a more limited definition of sexual harassment. But it also opened up OCR's uh, power because it said if universities aren't offering certain procedural protections, then OCR has the right to step in. And I just want to say that I was the reporter for an ABA task force on due process and victim protection. We had a, um, a very very, uh, a varied group of members, including pro-victim people, and we reached consensus on detailed pro-due process recommendations, like the right to a hearing, like the right to question, because victims, remember, victims also, at a victim at a big powerhouse university, a pro football school, do you think that she's going to get a fair hearing there? Do you think she wants the single investigatory method? Uh, so many don't. So due process is also pro-victim. Can I jump in now? Or? Yes. Oh, yes, I keep... I don't have to ask permission. <laughs> You're right. also polite. So the reality, let's talk about the single investigator because that's been brought up a couple times. I don't know what things are like here at AEI, but in private employers, if someone comes to uh, your HR person or supervisor and says, my colleague is harassing me, or my colleague grabbed me, or my colleague raped me in the parking lot, what a private employer is going to set up a system where you come into the HR office the person you accuse gets to cross-examine you through their lawyer. You get to cross-examine them. And then the HR department, a separate person from the person investigating, has to make a decision. No. In the world, lots of decisions are made through a single investigator model. Is it always going to be more accurate than an adversarial model? May, probably not. But is an adversarial model always more accurate? Is it always better? And the answer is no. We have tons of countries across the world that don't use adversarial systems. We have tons of systems in the United States that use things like single investigator well, models. Seth, let me, let me follow up on this because I have a question right about this. Now, not all the offenses that we're talking about uh, that fit under Title IX uh, rise to the level of a criminal offense, but a lot, some of them do. Many of them uh, do, and those uh, may be the ones that we're most most concerned about. And both sets of guidance, the Obama uh, administration guidance and the, the Trump administration's guidance, incorporate elements of criminal prosecution and due process. But my question to both sides is whether the DeVos guidance mistakenly asks colleges and universities to adopt too much of a posture of uh, criminal court cases and prosecution. So I Absolutely. think no. Uh, I, 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 mean, I, I cannot. Look, I have been um, I have been the advisor in, I think, six hearings at my institution. I've written widely in this area. I've interviewed administrators at universities across the country. And I think that the right to a live hearing, I mean, yes, absolutely. At your, call, at your workplace, it may be different. But in this country, procedural protections are directly related to what's at stake. That's why when you're facing 
custody, you get beyond a reasonable doubt. And what happens if you're found responsible to workplace? You're fired and you get another job. If, if I could if, just, let me if, finish. If you if you're at a university and you're found responsible, you are expelled. And you know what? If you don't have a lot of money, and many people don't, being expelled means that's it for you. I would say that when you look at the data, very few people are expelled. We're not talking about expulsions. We're talking about sanctions like suspension. And if you're a human, if you lose your job, you lose your money, you lose your livelihood, I don't see how you can distinguish and say being suspended for a semester from school is somehow categorically work, worse than being suspended for two weeks without pay. And yet we accept that employers, both public and private, can use these non-adversarial methods in order to reach judgments about what happens and how to how to address it in the in the here and now. And the and the suspension suspension and expulsion from an educational institution versus losing a job are much more comparable than suspension or expulsion from an institution and going to jail which is what happens in the criminal justice system. The stakes are completely different, um, and the stakes for in, in these proceedings, in the Title IX proceedings, are equally, um, there are equal stakes, whereas in the criminal justice system, the stakes are imbalanced because one person can go to jail, um, but only that person is going to go to jail as a result of of the proceeding. Um, I just want to say, you know, that because the single investigator model is being um, is being discussed, that that the single investigator model, first of all, the the name is a misnomer. Um, I don't know of any institution that uses an investigation model that is using a single person for everything. Um, almost all of these systems use multiple investigators, and the students have the ability to bring in an advisor to these meetings as well as to a live hearing, right? That's something that's guaranteed under a different law, which is the Clery Act, um, and I was a part of negotiating that right for students to bring those advisors into the proceeding. So, so it's a misnomer, um, but in addition, uh, you know, it has been shown that, or it has been adopted by many institutions because it works better. So um, let, let me move you on because I have 17 more questions in three <laughs> minutes. Um, so, but you've, you've asked about these things, and, and uh, Nancy, I keep jumping off your comments. Uh, you, you talked about the difference between criminal prosecutions and the stakes. And one of the things related to that is um, the standard that uh, prosecutions or, or, or investigations have to meet. And the DeVos guidance allows schools to uh, choose or purports to give them flexibility to choose between the preponderance of evidence standard, which is 51% likelihood of happening, or the clear and convincing standard, which is higher but lower than the beyond a reasonable doubt when you have stakes for um, uh, you know, jail and, uh, and criminal procedures. So my question is, is this a mistake? And is there a single 
uh, sort of standard of, of evidence that should be brought to bear on all these institutions. Could well, so, so let's just be clear. It's not, an, it's not a neutral thing. Right. The, the, the regulations, the proposed regulations are written in such a way so that schools will be pushed to adopt the clear and convincing evidence standard for these cases, even though schools have overwhelmingly chosen on their own to use the preponderance standard for, um, for all kinds of student misconduct including these cases. But I, I want to jump in on a couple of things. First, schools did not voluntarily choose these things. S schools were told, if you don't do what we tell you to do, you will be subject to investigations for months, years. They are designed, I mean designed, to threaten your reputation. Why did the OCR do this? Because they didn't have any other penalties. They couldn't go to court because they ignored the Supreme Court. They will never take away federal funding for this. So what penalty did they have? Bullying schools. And that's why so many schools did it. Now, I, Nancy also made a point that I really want to disagree with, that there was nothing new in these regulations. The in only, which regulations? Uh, in the regulations, I'm sorry, the, in the Obama-era regulations. Um, there was one precedent, and that was the 2001 um, uh, guidance issued by the Clinton administration on the day before George W. Bush's inauguration. They rushed this through, midnight regulations, um, and there were new things there, but there was nothing about single investigator. There was nothing about preponderance of the evidence. Um, these were really new. Uh, so you can't simply look back and say they're, they were falling precedent. So, so I hear you jumping to get in. I respectfully, I uh, think that that's a mischaracterization of what happened in the Obama administration. But I think the important point here is that many schools chose the single investigator model. Many schools did not. They keep saying on the other side that it encouraged the single investigator model. Well, that's a, that's a nice word. But when you look at what was actually said, it's like, if you have a hearing, here's what needs to happen at the hearing. And some schools dis maintained hearings, some schools added hearings. But to suggest that there was a, a, a federal mandate or even a federal thumb on the scale in favor of single investigator over not is not true. And the length of investigations is because these are hard issues. You can't figure out whether women are being denied benefits and excluded from participation in a program without looking at what they're doing over a course of years. And once you get into those files, it takes time. The Office for Civil Rights, in my opinion, is completely under-resourced. And once the word got out that OCR was willing to hear cases about schools not responding to sexual violence, the numbers skyrocketed. These were not OCR-initiated investigations. These were students from all over the country frustrated with their schools non-responsiveness, seeking a third party as a catalyst for change. So, so let me, I, let me so jump I, in here I, with I, another question. I'm, uh, the, uh, we've talked about a number of things that are a little bit like, well, they encouraged this and they pushed this. Let's talk about a requirement. The DeVos regulations require that cross-examination be allowed in, in hearings. And that seems like a pretty basic tenet of jurisprudence and due process. I, I'm, I'm wondering, should it not be required? Is that not a good step? 
or, or is that, and it's fine to say yes, it, it doesn't have to be across the board, but I'm wondering for the opponents, is the cross-examination requirement too much to ask? Yes. I mean, across the board, yes. And I will say, I'm a lawyer, I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a comparative international lawyer, but there's lots of ways to get at the truth. Cross-examination is described as a, the, uh, the best way, the best legal engine we have, but that was comparing it to the torture of witnesses that occurred beforehand. What we're dealing with here today is a, universe, a world where, particularly with young people in you know, high school and elementary school who will also be subject to this regulation, when you cross, an adult cross-examines someone younger, that does not yield more accurate results. And they find with people with developmental disabilities the same problem, that there is the cross-examination as, you know, uh, can lead to falsehoods. And more generally, many times, cross-examination leads people to believe that someone's lying when they're not. Because so, supporters, I'll let you quickly weigh in. So just first of all, because often this is a credibility contest, um, the, the, the DeVos guidelines explicitly say that the right to cross-examine does not exist, that, that the parties cannot question the other person in elementary schools and high schools, specifically because of the age of those people. So it's not true that it's the same thing. And in terms of where did the admonition about or the, the encouragement, that came from the 2014 uh, White House Task Force to Protect Students. In that, um, the, the, uh, that's when the White House said encourage schools to use the single investigator model, and I actually contacted schools across the country and researched and found that, in fact, six of the um, of the top 30, tw top 20 uh, universities, private universities, and top five historically black, and top five, uh, top 10 uh, uh, liberal arts colleges use the same model where the investigative decision maker are the same, and at the 50 flagship state universities, um, another four do the same thing. So it's not just. And did they all up. did they all adopt them after 2014? They all did it after two. Well, I, I don't actually know when they do it. That's what they exactly have now. because we don't. You're saying in 2014 they told you that in four years all these schools changed their models. I I, I think that's not a realistic uh, causal link. But my, and, no, no, the and issue that, was whether or not it's happening, and it is happening. But remember, um, with regards to what, what, my, what my esteemed colleague is talking about, it's not just the investigations, the way that, the, that OCR bullied. They also listed publicly, anytime anybody made a complaint, whether or not there was any factual basis for it at all, they listed on a website the names. And note that under the Department of Justice policies, under DOJ, you cannot list except in very special circumstances when somebody is under investigation because it biases them. And then last, with regards to cross-examination, what it, the studies show that it's a better way when you hear people live, when you can watch them, it's easier to judge whether the person is telling the truth. I have a question for the, uh, the supporters of the motion. Um, the, the DeVos uh, guidelines limit the scope of college and university employees who must report Title IX complaints. That sounds like it's going to limit reporting, uh, which seems bad, uh, won't it? And is there a defense for narrowing the scope and limiting reporting? What the DeVos regulations say are that if you want to file a complaint, you should do so with the Title IX coordinator. And there's a responsibility of schools that should be enforced to let that be known exactly how to do that. The, the current rules, 
say basically that every university uh, faculty member and many staff members have to report anything they hear, anything they hear. Quite frankly, I don't want to be part of the sexual harassment police because that means that students are not going to be willing to talk to me about things if they know that I have to report it. Just to give you one question, I had a student, I teach sexual harassment law in my class. A student came up to me and said that I have been a victim of, of sexual violence. I'm not sure I want to come to class. Um, she actually then, I said, that's fine. Um, no problem with that. She came and decided that actually it was a good experience for her. Was I to, to report that even though she did not want me to? My wife's a psychologist. She doesn't have to report things and say people say things to her in private, but according to the current regulations, there is no privacy that we're all supposed to be reporting, even if the student doesn't want it. And that leads to cases like in, I think, University of Colorado Pueblo, where um, uh, a woman said that she had consensual sex. Someone else said no, um, that you didn't have consensual sex. And that uh, the guy who was accused was thrown out. Opponents so that's quickly responded. So that's inaccurate. Um, there is there is nothing in the OCR guidelines um, that indicate that every person on a that everyone has to be a responsible employee. Sure there is. It's up the, to the school to decide who is a responsible employee and who is a confidential employee. I know this because I worked very closely um, to come up, you know, to figure out a way for students to come forward confidentially and get resources confidentially without having to go to the. So let me ask you this then: Is there? Right? It so, seems like there's flexibility, and then the new requirements would only require that they would, be to the Title IX. So would right, it not which, necessarily limit reporting? Well, no, it would potentially limit reporting because there's lots of people who don't want to come forward to the Title IX coordinator. Right, but because look, if you come forward to the Title IX coordinator, the Title IX coordinator could be required to investigate that report, right? That's, that's simply and, not true. And, and you may want to just access services, accommodations, et cetera, et cetera. You don't want an investigation. But that, that's report. exactly what the current, the proposed regulations say. They make a distinction between going to the Title IX coordinator and beginning an investigation and going to a Title IX coordinator and asking for various uh, protective services. They make that very explicit. So yes, I would but, like to, I'd like to turn. Very, there are very specific restrictions on what the Title IX coordinator can do under the proposed regulations that were not in place under the um, under either the 2001 revised guidance or the 1997 original guidance. The 2001 revised guidance, yes, it was issued on the last day of the Clinton administration, but it made minimal changes to guidance that was issued in 1997. So I want to move um, so to, it, it I move to audience uh, questions here in, in, in a moment. So I'm going to give, um, we're going to have microphones coming in from the back. So if you uh, have a question, you can raise your hand in just a moment. I want to raise a last question, and I want this to be a, a whip around. I want all four of you to answer it in one sentence. Um, the motion is an overarching one, whether you uh, this is a step in the right direction or in the wrong direction. And there's lots of different moving pieces. What are the top two pieces that support your position? 
the top two problems. Just identify them. Seth, can you start out? The uh, top two problems. The top two, yeah, specific problems. Just name them. A universal requirement for every school in the country to use cross-examination and the uh, failure to protect complainant privacy. Tamara? Uh, the increase in procedural protections and the allowance for schools to use flexibility like restorative justice processes instead of a formal adjudicative model. Nancy? The fact that these regulations, proposed regulations, criminalize a civil rights law um, and import things that have nothing to do with equality um, into, into a civil rights statute that is supposed to be about equality. Chuck? Number one, by lowering, by reducing the definition of sexual harassment is greater protection of free speech. Number two, by using notice and comment rulemaking, it provides much more transparency and participation in the rulemaking process. All right. So um, audience members, <laughs> brave enough to tangle with our, uh, our debaters, if you'd raise your hands, we have, uh, I can barely see, someone must have a microphone in the back. Hi. Go ahead and stand up so we can see you. <laughs> Okay, so my name is Asha Reynolds, and I work in education, and my question is, um, without subpoena power, how are schools expected to bring witnesses outside of the university community into hearings if they are then subject to cross-examination? Well, I think that they that they don't. I mean, if they can't subpoena, courts can subpoena, so they can request that people go forward. And usually the parties will ask these witnesses to come because the witnesses will be on their behalf. But schools don't have the right to subpoena. And part of the reason they don't have the right to subpoena is because the stakes aren't the same as in a, as in a criminal courtroom. And I think that shows that these kind of absolutist rules that anyone who's not subject to cross-examination, their testimony can never be used, is really kind of overbroad. You, schools should be allowed to be more contextual and, and permit, you know, like courts do, some out-of-statement testimony to be admitted. So actually, no. The, the reason why that came into place, and I pushed for that with the ABA task force, and I'm very proud of it, is because in court, defendants have a Sixth Amendment right to confront, which means you can't bring in somebody's statement if, if, as long as it is testimonial and have the defendant not have the right to cross-examine that person. And similarly, the defendant can't bring in a statement that he makes unless it complies with the rules of evidence. I, I think there are lots of exceptions, hearsay exceptions in Rule 803, and 804 of the Federal Rules of Evidence, but... But they must comply with the Confrontation Clause. For criminal cases. All right, we're getting into the weeds. Another question. Uh, I've got one right out front here. Uh, thank you. Gerald Chandler, mostly as to uh, Seth Galanter, this question. You've brought up uh, rape several times, and I want to just concentrate on rape. Do I understand you essentially to say that if there's an accusation of rape and it's brought to the legal court system, that we should have the full uh, power of the law and uh, assumption of innocence? But if it's not brought to the courts and it's dealt only by the university, then we should have a preponderance of uh, evidence. Uh, standard. Thank you for the question. I, I'm not saying exactly that. What I'm saying is it depends on what the stakes are, right? You can bring a lawsuit against your rapist in, in court for tort of assault and battery and only prove that by a preponderance. But yeah, if you're going to take away someone's liberty, 
you have to prove it by beyond reasonable doubt. And the view I have is that if a school thinks it's more likely than not that you're a rapist, it may, if it wants to, discipline you for that. Yes, but in, in civil court, you're going to get a lawyer, you're going to get a judge, you're going to get the rules of evidence. If you're in federal court, you're going to get a jury. So there are all these things that take place that don't happen in the uh, school setting. Didn't the ABA task force actually support the preponderance of the evidence standard? The ABA said that the preponderance of the evidence, we defined it specially, and we said that it should only be in place if there was uh, an adversarial uh, model that we did not say it should be there with the single investigator model. All right, I got one. I, I got another question right here in the front. Uh, Meredith Rogerson from Louisville, Kentucky. I was just wondering, are male students protected under X9? Under Title IX? Absolutely. Uh, it's less common for them to be the victims of sexual assault, but it does happen on a surprisingly uh, and sadly uh, large basis. And they would be protected just like women who are accused of sexual assault or sexual harassment would be entitled to the protections that the school would provide. It depends, I think, what you mean by protected. There can be a case against uh, 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 if someone can, a male can complain about sexual harassment, sexual violence. I think the question is, are males protected against stereotyping in the adversarial process? And if you start with the assumption that many people do in the in Title IX offices, that you always believe the person, uh, the woman who is a complainant, um, then you're stereotyping. Um, and there's a great deal of problem with stereotyping. And I, I really disagree with what Nancy said about uh, uh, the number of black males who have been accused and found guilty because I, what I've seen is that there's been a serious disproportion um, of, uh, of uh, finding uh, black men guilty of sexual misconduct. And I think that is why we have due process. Uh, and I have time for one more question before we go to uh, closing statements. I've got one right up here in the front, Jack. Front row, or second to front row. Hi, my name is Patrick, and uh, I work in the legal field. My question is for the opponents here. So uh, it's kind of two-part. First, would it not be better to have the definition of sexual harassment codified as opposed to just in an executive uh, letter such as Dear Colleague? And if so, what would be your definition of sexual harassment? Would it be sort of as uh, wide boundaries as that by the Obama administration? So I don't have any problem with, uh, with there being a codification of a definition of sexual harassment. My problem is with this particular definition. The liability structure of Title IX, like with Title VII, is a two-part liability structure. So when we're talking about what constitutes sexual harassment in terms of what the school should be deciding in an individual case where one student has accused another student, <coughs> then the the proper definition is whether or not the conduct was welcome, and that is taken from sexual harassment case law um, that has de been developed mainly in the Title VII context um, and, uh, and in the Meritor case. Um, however, the issue for the school, when the school is being you know, sued or investigated, is whether or not they tolerated 
sexual harassment to such an extent that it created a hostile environment so that the student could not continue with their education in the way that they would have if they had not been sexually harassed. And so, so that is, for that standard, um, the hostile environment standard should be severe or pervasive, um, which is also the, the uh, definition that was developed through primarily the Title VII context. Okay, so I, I'm going to change up the schedule a little bit. We need to move to closing statements, uh, but there's, I have so many more questions that <laughs> will stay after until 9 or 10 o'clock. <laughs> um, we get uh, overtime for that. That's right. right. Uh, moving to uh, closing statements in the same order as, er uh, as earlier. First, we have Shep Melnick. Thanks. Most of this debate has focused on policy. How can we fairly address the problem of sexual misconduct in our schools. But let's not forget the larger question of how we govern ourselves in a liberal democracy. The people who wrote the 2011-2014 guidelines were so sure that they were on the side of the angels, that they figured they could roam far away from the statute passed by Congress, and they could uh, roam far away from the interpretation of the Title IX presented by the Supreme Court. They didn't need to seek public participation or cite research or even admit that they were doing something new. But they were doing lots of things new. And these rules applied to every primary school, every high school, every college in the country. Not surprisingly, that hubris produced flawed policy. Now, there's one matter um, I completely agree with my opponents on the other side. We shouldn't trust the Trump administration. We should take a very close look at everything they're doing. All too often, the Trump administration has relied on unilateral executive power, has ignored Congress, has shown contempt for the judiciary, and has threatened the rule of law. In this instance, though, the Department of Education has done just the opposite. It has shown respect for Congress, respect for the courts. It has followed the law, and it has avoided unilateral pronouncements. As much as some of us might dislike the present administration, we should admit that at least this time it acted responsibly. What a pleasant surprise. Thank you, Shep. Uh, Seth Galanter, closing statement for the opposition. There's an old saying, I guess it's about 40 years old now, that hell is a place where due process will be meticulously followed. <laughs> and that's what the DeVos-Trump administration wants to impose on 7,000 different school, higher education schools across the country. The Obama administration imposed a rule of equality. Whatever you gave to one party, you had to give to the other. The burden of proof had to be uh, equal for both. This administration has decided that cross-examination is necessary in every school in the country. The head of Liberty University submitted a comment saying, we don't want to use cross-examination. We want to use a model more like in Europe. Uh, are they to be denied that right? Similarly, uh, this single investigation model, it may work for some, it may not work for others. What is the factual basis for eliminating it for every school in the country. And that goes to the second point, and probably my last point given the time, uh, that where is the data? The data shows us consistently that there's a lot of sexual harassment and sexual violence. And it affects men and women who go to college and even go to high school. Uh, and whether it's one in five, one in four, one in 10, there's a lot of it. Where's the evidence, where's the numbers that people are being unjustly uh, 
found responsible when they shouldn't be. The last I saw is that people point to data of 200 lawsuits. That's like, that's anecdotes, that's stories. And yes, some courts have found that some schools have gone too far, but did they go too far because of the guidance? And is it worth the, the energy and to impose this prescriptive system when we don't even know the scope of the problem that we're trying to fix here? Thank you. Seth, uh, closing statement from Tamara Rice-Lave. Safety and fairness are not a zero-sum game. Schools can successfully lower the incidence of rape while at the same time protecting the rights of the accused. To achieve this, schools need to focus on preventing rape. One obvious first step is curbing the consumption of alcohol on campus, which has been shown to be involved in most rapes, both by the offender and the victim. Schools must also encourage bystander intervention so that students take care of those around them and stop assault before it happens. Unfortunately, even if a school commits to taking all of these steps, sexual assault will still occur. When an allegation is made, it must be taken seriously, and investigation must be timely and vigorous. Taking an allegation seriously does not mean that it is true. And universities must have the kind of robust procedural protections required by the new DeVos guidelines, protections like the right to counsel, the right to put on evidence, and the right to cross-examine. Note that the, the new guidelines specifically say that recipients of elementary schools may require a live hearing, but students, but, but secondary, post-secondary institutions must. And direct questioning of the other side is not allowed at post-secondary schools, but it's required, I'm sorry, at high schools and elementary schools, but it's required at universities. But it isn't just the accused who benefits from these protections. The, Junivas, the new DeVos guidelines ensure that inculpatory evidence about a star football player isn't hidden away in some dusty drawer at a Division I powerhouse. Emphasizing fairness also benefits the larger community. Tom Tyler's work on legitimacy shows that people are more likely to follow the law if they believe it is fair, and procedural fairness is the most important attribute they look for. Indeed, research by Tyler and Fagan shows that fair process promotes law-abidingness and increases cooperation with the police and community, co and community participation in fighting crime, attributes necessary in fostering bystander intervention. The DeVos guidelines may not be perfect, but they are a major step in the right direction. Thank you. And uh, finally, for the opposition, uh, Nancy Chi Canlupo. So in my closing, I want to remind us all that Title IX is a civil rights law. It deals with sexual harassment and violence because sexual violence has long been recognized as a severe form of sexual harassment, which has likewise long been recognized and throughout the globe as a form of sex discrimination. To say that sexual harassment is a form of discrimination is to acknowledge the many links between this harassment and gender inequality, links that hashtag MeToo has recently recalled. To paraphrase the UN Secretary General, sexual harassment is both a cause and a consequence of gender inequality. This is why under both Republican and Democratic previous administrations, Title IX viewed sexual harassment as unequal treatment that violates the victim's civil rights. The DeVos proposals would disregard this historical and legally accurate approach and instead attempt to treat this conduct not as a civil rights violation, 
but only as a crime and if it does not meet criminal standards as something to be ignored and tolerated. Treating sexual harassment solely as a crime does not address the ways uh, that it causes and results from inequality. This is because the criminal system is not structured to address inequality, and even if it worked perfectly 100% of the time, it would not recognize nor redress the inequalities of sexual harassment. For instance, the criminal law is not structured to provide remedies to victims so they can retain their equal educational opportunities after being victimized. If we allow the DeVos proposals to turn Title IX into a criminal or even quasi-criminal law, we will eliminate Title IX's ability to provide such remedies and to fulfill its purpose of fighting inequality. A vote for the DeVos proposals is a vote against principles of equality and equal treatment to which we have long committed ourselves as a nation. Thank you, Nancy. And can I get a round of applause for our wonderful debaters? Thank you very much. Uh, now I would like you all to get out your phones. I would like you to vote again uh, for your final vote of the night. It can certainly be your earlier vote, or if it's changed, uh, that's fine as well. And uh, while I'm letting the audience cast some votes, I have one more question for uh, our debaters. Whether it's revised or not, if it's passed through notice and comment, um, I want to know what our debaters think about how durable these regulations are going to be, and if there is a great, uh, greatest challenge to them, will it come from the courts, Congress, or the next administration? If we knew who the next administration would be, we could have. <laughs> Let's just assume that by next, yeah. I mean whatever, not 2020, but... Uh, Let me just... Uh, I think that they will be durable uh, as as regulations because they're very hard to overturn. It's a very long process. I think the bigger question is, what effect will they have on universities? And uh, most universities are not going to make very many changes because, as my partner said, um, most of these are minimum standards in, in university are going to continue what they're doing. The big, the big pressure on procedure is going to come from the courts, as it already has. So, where, where do you think the, the most pressure for challenge might come from? I think... Certainly, the Administrative Procedures Act sets it up right. so that um, it would be through judicial review and through a court challenge. Um, but, you know, I think it's important to understand that these regulations uh, and this approach is not does not have widespread public support. Um, so, you know, even prior to the issuance of the notice of proposed rulemaking, there was a call for comment from the public by the Department of Education. And that call for comment resulted in 16,000 comments from the public, 12, about 12,000 of which were um, about referenced Title IX in some way. And 99% of those comments were in support of the Obama administration's the way the Obama administration had had been enforcing Title IX. And, you know, I mean, 99% and 94% specifically said that, uh, of these commenters, specifically said that the new administration should continue to enforce 
the 2011 Dear Colleague letter. I think that there's going to be public pressure. Public opposition. Um, and public opposition sure. based on that. Seth, Tamara, any, any thoughts quickly? You know, I just want to say that um, I was a public defender. And people hate public defenders until they're accused of a crime. And I helped a student on campus who was very pro-Me Too and everything. And, uh, and then when he was accused, all of a sudden, he cared a lot about process. So I just wonder how many of these thousands of people have been accused and have gone through a process where they weren't giving evidence, where they didn't have any, where they didn't have a live hearing, where they couldn't ask questions, where they couldn't present evidence on their behalf. Because if those were people that suffered that, they wouldn't like the 2011 guidelines. So I'm going to close voting and ask uh, my fantastic RA, Connor Kurtz, who put all this together and definitely deserves a round of applause. Thank you, Connor. Connor is tabulating the results. Seth, where do you think the greatest threat might come from? I love public defenders, by the way. They serve a critical role. I have been mugged, and I'm still a Democrat. So, but the greatest threat is if these regs go into effect the way they're written now, they will be litigated, and the courts will strike them down, and I will be part of that. Okay. <laughs> Fighting words from Seth. Uh, Connor, do you have a slip of paper for me? How low tech. Indeed. It's, it's high tech until we get it here. All right. The results of uh, tonight's debate. In round one on the motion, uh, Betsy DeVos's proposed regulations on Title IX sexual harassment are a step in the right direction. 22% of the audience voted yes. The no's had 44% of the audience, and fully 34, more than one in three of our audience, was undecided. The round two vote has come in. The supporters, uh, those who agreed with the motion, rose 39%, which is a 19-point increase. I'm sorry, we have a correction for round two. <laughs> <laughs> OK. <laughs> remind, remind me to speak with Connor later. <laughs> 22 and 44 was uh, the uh, round one, uh, with 34 undecided. The yes vote was 39% uh, in round two, which is an increase of 17 points. And the no vote was 44 and rose to 48%, a gain of four percentage points. The undecideds were seven. And our winner are the, uh, are the proponents of tonight's debate, um, Shep Melnick and Tamara Rice-Lave. Uh, thank you all for coming to the uh, Ed Policy Debate Series, and we'll try and bring you back in the fall when our next installment. That's a wrap for the report card this week. Thanks for listening, and we hope you can join us for our next live debate this fall at AEI. Special thanks to our debaters, Shep Melnick, Tamara Rice-Lave, Nancy Chi Cantalupo, and Seth Galanter. This episode was produced by Connor Kurtz, Sophia Gallo, Amy Cummings, Macy Heath, and Gage Hurley of Liquid Media. To make sure you never miss an episode again, you can subscribe to The Report Card on iTunes, Google, or your favorite podcast player. And while you're there, take a minute to rate and review us to help others find the show. We're always looking for topic suggestions and feedback from listeners. Let us know what you think of the show by emailing us at ed.podcast at aei.org. 
Signing off for now, I'm Nat Malkus. <laughs>